Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sword of Trust. Sword of Trust stars Mark Marin as a cynical pawn shop owner in possession of a sword that, according to a network of deranged conspiracy theorists, proves the South really won the Civil War. Marin gives his best performance to date as he and his ragtag cohorts try to take this seedy subculture for all it's worth. Sword of Trust is now in theaters and on demand with Mark and director Lynn Shelton appearing at select screenings. Visit swordoftrust.com for details. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Fun show today. Greenwald calls in from New Mexico to talk about rookie showrunner mistakes and we also chatted a little bit about some Hollywood news. We we dressed the Jeremy Renner Jeep commercial so Everybody take a deep breath. We also talked about this fascinating news story that Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach will be working with Margot Robbie on a Barbie movie for Warner Brothers, so that's fun. Some other stuff with Andy. Then Amanda joined me, Amanda Dobbins, uh, co-host of Big Low Live and The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins. You can also hear her on Jam Session, several other podcasts, The Big Picture. We talked about Big Little Lies season two, but specifically about the Andrea Arnold story that came out uh, at the end of last week about her sort of essentially being replaced while season two was being filmed from IndieWire about that. It was a really interesting conversation. Amanda and I talked a little bit about Big Little Lies, and then I was joined by Allison Herman to talk about Euphoria. So fun show today. Check it out. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm editor at TheRinger.com and calling me from his trailer. Ooh la la. It's Andy Greenwald. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I've, I've gone Hollywood. Except I'm in the middle. I'm in an embassy suites parking lot <laughs> in uh, northeast Albuquerque. Uh-huh. And I'm spending the day from 6 a.m. until probably 8 p.m. Uh, in a cemetery, and it is 99 degrees out. <laughs> and you're so also shooting a television allow me show. This moment. <laughs> exactly. Allow me this moment of respite. By the way, speaking of oblique criticisms of me going Hollywood, Chris, mm-hmm. I was, uh, tra- first of all, great to talk to you. Yeah, Hi, nice everybody. to talk to you, too. Um, I was trading emails with the Watch superfan, Alexa Fogel, uh-huh. uh, who was a guest on our show, and the brilliant casting director behind uh, such shows as The Deuce and The Wire and Atlanta, Pose. And she was she was very sweet, very kind. She was giving me advice about the show. I said, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard work, but it's it's good. And she said, really, the only thing that matters is if you have a good showrunner. <laughs> and I, I feel like there are a lot of ways to take that. You know, <laughs> do you think that that was was that motivation Monday? Was she like, you just have to be the Jedi that we all know you are, I, or, or it was like you come from nothing. <laughs> There's three, there's three versions of it. There's three versions of it, all of which are related to Ray's parentage in the Star Wars film, right? Because her parentage has changed movie to movie. Yeah, of course. So there's the one where it's like Monday motivation. You are the Skywalker that we were promised and you can Skywalk the show. Two is you're trash. You come from a junk planet and you can never do this. And three is maybe she just didn't know that that's the role I'm filling here and then I shouldn't disabuser of that notion because then the true comment will come behind it like oh boy you know <laughs> like you rookie numbskull maybe don't write eight pages in a funeral in a, i mean of a funeral instead of a cemetery when it's going to be 99 degrees <laughs> good idea greenwald um thanks buddy so like that's an interesting idea because i know that part of what you've been talking to me about is as you've been making the show and we're talking about briar patch obviously is that you know, the stuff that just seems like a great idea on this on the on the page 
you're just like, God, I wish somebody had rewritten me when you actually get have to, you have to oh. get to the production. Wait till we get to five and six. A lot of night work, Pally. A lot of night work for your boy. And for people who don't know, night work isn't like magic hour. It's not like we're going to catch nah. this one at happy hour before we call it quits. It's two to two, right? Or is it six to six? It, it's probably going to be, yeah, it's probably going to be like six to six. You start work at 6 p.m., you wrap at 6 a.m. Um, or, you know, the week just gets later and later. Like this morning we had a 6.30 a.m. call, you know, and so we're set to wrap like 6.30 p.m., by the end of the week, if we're doing anything at night or like, yeah, at the split, like night, day and night, it, we, we start later and then you, you go later. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let me tell you, you want some rookie showrunner mistakes? Sure. Uh, number one, promising your best friend you can continue to do the podcast every week. Clearly, clearly that was, that may have been an overstatement. Two. You've been uh, replaced by Claire Saffitt, so it's okay. That's fine. I support that completely and uh, wish you the best of luck. Two. Uh, a lot of outdoor stuff when it's going to be 100 degrees. So Andy sent me a picture uh, today yeah. of him in the cast of Briar Patch, and I did not <laughs> know this, but he has taken to dressing like Oliver Stone on the set of Salvador. You know, he just has like yeah, a man. neckerchief and a sun hat and, you know, like just looks like he's in Lost City of Z. It's called a buff, first of all, and it's necessary because the air here is 85% dust and dirt. So you got to you got to keep those, those those lungs clear, my guy. But the main takeaway wasn't just that; it's that this, this poor, beautiful, wonderful cast are wearing their their costumes, so they're dying. I I I didn't send you the picture yet of like the view from behind me in Video Village, which is where we all sit, you know, uh, in a tent watching the monitors, and it's just Rosario and Kim passed out. <laughs> they, they both just fully just just laid their heads back uncomfortably on director's chairs and just peaced out. Really? Because it is real, real hot. And they is there any like, like portable early. air conditioner or like cooling system yeah. for outdoors? Yeah. They're like the locations team is responsible for bringing these like giant uh, honey well units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they sort of pump marginally cool air into the tent. And then we have things like um, ice cloths to go around our necks. And then PAs are, all dressed like uh, they're on Lawrence of Arabia, carrying giant <laughs> Mary Poppins umbrellas over the heads of the actors as they walk around in the field. It's, it's a lot. But wait, let me hit my greatest hits of showrunner rookie mistake. Yeah, keep going. Uh, stuff outside in the sun. Literally anything at night. Yeah. Literally anything at night. Anything at night with children involved. <laughs> I mean, that's probably a mistake in life. Um, Have you done children? Uh, <laughs> please rephrase the question. Have you... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Have you worked with children in your, and on the show? There are uh, children. Yeah. There are a couple scenes where like there are kids in the background or there's one featured kid who plays a part across two episodes coming up and, uh, and, and at night in, Does that uh, we're, kid shooting watch in abandoned, we're, we're shooting in an abandoned power plant. So maybe we'll just take euphoria and double down on it. So uh, driving, no more driving process trailers. No fun. This is something that anyone who has ever done anything on a film set would have told me, but I didn't know. Process trailers are where like people are sitting in the actual car mm-hmm. doing their scene, like maybe they're driving, but yeah. the, tr- the car is hitched onto a, a truck and the cameras are pointed at them and the truck is driving. Yes. And so we had to shoot all this process trailer stuff the other day and the choices were sit on a bench, a metal bench backwards, hanging over the road, 
a bench that has been in the direct 90 degree sunlight for the last few hours <laughs> and then just drive in a giant circle around um, a portion of Albuquerque or follow van where you are in a van with a monitor rigged to it following all of that. And then you get into the van and uh, you're going to be driving around for 40 minutes and the picture conks out. So I listened to the visceral radio play that is part of Briar Patch episode four. And, uh, you know, I feel like, uh, I feel like they nailed it, frankly. So, <laughs> So we're learning, yeah. we're learning, and I go around the crew thanking all of them anyway, but I especially thank them for taking a flyer on a rookie showrunner because they could have seen this coming. So I I, I feel like my coming. job in your life now is to keep you tethered to, re, you know, pop culture reality, <laughs> but yeah, man. all the news I have for you doesn't seem real. So the first thing, and this has been <laughs> something that people in the Facebook group and, and yeah. on Twitter have been asking for us to address for a while. Is that yeah. obviously Jeremy Renner has been like teasing a foray yeah. into music and it was unclear what it was going to be. And my whole thing is this. When you really like hit on a bit, right? And you think yeah. you've got like, you're like, this is really funny that Jeremy Renner, the the IED expert in Hurt Locker, the guy who gets yeah. dunked on by Tom Cruise for two Mission Impossible movies, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Killer or whatever he was. Hunter's my guy. When he does something fun like house flips, you're like, oh, let's make a thing out of this. Like, it's really cool that Jeremy Renner does this. And when he talks about his properties. But I I don't really have anything to say about this guy and then doing music. And now it turns out this entire thing was like a co-sponsored thing with Jeep where he's done like four commercials that involve his band calling him Jay. And he's like coming out of restaurants and these commercials and people are like, hey, want to drive the Jeep? And they toss him the keys and he drives through the desert and then plays his music in these commercials. And it's essentially like pretty bad Maroon 5 stuff. But he is definitely mm-hmm. trying to be a real musician, Jeremy Renner. And I, I want to yeah. like share this with you, but I also feel like almost sad about it. Yeah, I think. Have you seen the ad? I had some fun. Yeah, I think we've all had some fun on day one. Yeah. But I think there's a problem here, which is the sincerity factor. Because he really, really, really is buying into this. I think you're right. There is no, there's just no layer of self-awareness or irony. It doesn't feel charitable because it doesn't feel fun anymore. Is that right? Do you feel that too? I just feel like it's been a long time since Jeremy Renner has been like, the Jeremy Renner from the town or even Arrival. And so now it, it's yeah. just like, I, I, I just I just feel like we're watching a guy go through some stuff and it's really fine. Like everybody can explore different artistic ways of, of expressing sure. themselves. But this just isn't like hilarious to me. It's just almost like, hey, just like kind of let him do this and then we'll get him back <laughs> soon. So there's that. And then of I, course, this one, the other piece of cultural news that I have to share with you, which you actually in truth shared with me, but I'm going to pretend like you don't know this, is that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig are going to make a Barbie movie with Margot Robbie for Warner Brothers. I mean, why not, right? I don't know. I I could give you a couple reasons why not. Well, okay, let's let's do it from a couple different perspectives. I will do it from the Warner Brothers perspective. How about that? Because, you know, I'm, I'm now in a trailer, so sure. I really... Yeah, I, you, I, you're I, at an NBC I, suite, so you're essentially running Warner Brothers. Here's the thing they say about me. Here's the thing they say about me is that when the push comes to shove, I always side with the big guy. And so 
every one of these companies has this IP. You and I love to talk about it, right? And they're looking at it. And they're like, well, I guess this is the thing that will get made. And this is the thing that we've been paying on the option for. And we have to make it. So what are we going to do with it? And it appears, you know, increasingly diminished returns, as you and I would argue there ought to be, for projects that solely exist to service the brand name, right? I mean, I think that, I don't even know if we podcasted about it, but like that moment earlier this spring when there was a Sonic the Hedgehog trailer released and everyone was just literally just, what the fuck? Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. Is this really what we're doing? Also, what's up with his hedgehog crotch? But regardless of that, <laughs> um, and the teeth, just horrifying. So if you're going to do something with it, I do think that there is merit in the idea of let's do something surprising or let's do something interesting. Movie stars, you know, appear appear to be negligible. So Margot Robbie is a popular performer. She's a talented performer. I don't know if she opens a movie. They're banking on however many people are going to see a movie just because it has a recognizable piece of IP in the title. So then the other stuff, why not try to make it better or interesting? If you're only getting X number of people in the door off of the name regardless, why not class it up? I don't know. So I, that I mean, makes I, sense to I me. I recorded a segment with Amanda about Big Little Lies that people will hear in a few minutes. And we talked a lot about the Andrea Arnold controversy that came up on Friday. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. Yeah, and you know, I, I even said to her, I was like, Andy could probably speak to this better than I could about the way in which directors are sort of brought into projects and how they work on TV projects. But for the most part... You know, I th- I just think that when we see someone's name attached to something, we assume we are going to get like a Greenberg Ladybird version of of Barbie, and that is likely not what we will get. In fact, I would say it's likely that the chances of this ever actually happening are slim. You know, like I mean, that you get a lot of this person is working on this. And more often than not, it's something like Phoebe Waller-Bridge doing Bond, where it's like, I did some yep. work on it, but I am not directing Bond or whatever. You know, Greta Gerwig has tried to do some mainstream stuff before. She was supposed to essentially write and star in the How I Met Your Mother spinoff, How I Met Your Dad. And she was an Arthur. Like, I mean, she's done bigger stuff before. And I would also say that for as popular and beloved as Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig are, their movies are not necessarily like life-changing financial pursuits. I would say, right? Correct. And I think that this probably is. I'm sure that the money that they could make working on Barbie, whether it comes to fruition or not, is significantly more than what they make for making the films that they want to be making right now. I totally agree with that. And I think you cannot discount it. And I think it also, the wording of it was very specific, which is that they're going to write it with an eye towards Gerwig directing it. That means they went in with the best pitch that blew everyone away, and then they looked at each other, like two characters in a movie about to hook up, and they're like, are we doing this? They're like, we're doing this. So they got the green light to do a treatment and maybe write a script eventually. They can walk away at any time, but they're going to get a paycheck for their work on it, and if things are going well and they trust the people they're working with, then maybe she'll direct it. And I do think, you know, she... Neither of us were doing this, but I think in terms of, like, the group think, it's not fair to assume the boundaries of the career she wants to have. She made a, you know, you and I think a nearly perfect movie in Lady Bird. She, she leveled up a little bit in terms of ambition and budget with the little women adaptation that she made that's coming out later in the year. Who knows what the ceiling is on this? She might want to do big budget movies. She might want to bite at that particular apple. This seems like a pretty good way to, to, to start, especially if you have, you know, two of the three pieces necessary for getting a release date and not just being a Netflix thing these days, which are major IP and at least, you know, a name. 
I, I still don't know if Margot Robbie sells tickets, but it gets people interested in giving you a budget to make the movie. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I mean, honestly, like, Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and $700 million worth of people saw Suicide Squad. So I think yep. she's pretty famous, you know. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Andrea Arnold? I have my thoughts. I'll share them with Amanda. So if you wanted to just go off, go off, King. Just, well, no, I mean, I just found the whole thing really fascinating. And uh, obviously thinking a lot about things like this because we are making a show where you know, we had a brilliant visionary director and Lily Amirpour direct our pilot. She's maybe shooting a movie right now uh, in New Orleans, and so she couldn't come back to direct the season. Um, so we, we both eyed each other longingly across a text message chain. Um, so we have other directors, and I'm going to hopefully get the green light to announce some of them soon because they're awesome, and I'm so excited to be working with them. Is it Oliver but, Stone? Um, it is Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Did, did Oliver text you too? Uh, Rosario has Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone only uses Signal. Uh, <laughs> Oliver Stone and Sam Esmail. So it is a it is an ongoing thing, which is you know we hired people because we love them personally, we love them artistically, we love them aesthetically, but we also have to be mindful of folding them into the larger whole because this has to look like the same TV show week to week. Yes, um, it was the same thing in a way with the writers' room where I had these brilliant people writing scripts and working with me and de- defining the story. And this show is them. There is no show without them and they are equal partners in it. But ultimately the show also has to sound like it came from, from one voice. So I'm, I'm definitely sympathetic to the plot of though wanting some consistency. What strikes me as so weird here is that it does sound like everyone was like Andrea Arnold, who is a genius. I love her. I love her movies. I love the way she directs. They were like, we want you to be you or else why would she, sign up to do the second season of something with an established point of view. And then she went in and did the thing she wanted to do. And then there's that moment that you you and I have talked about in different contexts that always seems to come up in Hollywood, which is where the people who are actually controlling the money are like, oh, we don't actually want to take chances here. This is an incredibly, unfathomably expensive project. But there could be all sorts of reasons for that. I'm not, yeah. I mean, I talked about this with Amanda, so I don't want to step on my own takes or Amanda's takes. It was, but I think that like, I was told one thing and it was another thing is is a tale as old as Hollywood itself, which is not necessarily make yep. it any better than than anything else. But I think what happens is as we bring, as you see more and more really interesting filmmakers get involved in episodic television, it's going to be a culture clash mm-hmm. between the traditional way that people used to make TV, which is like you're saying, not only do we need the show to look the same every week, but just listen to what Andy said in the beginning of this podcast about rookie showrunner mistakes. Think about how yeah. hard that is to like apply your cinematic vision to, hey, we're going to be in a cemetery for eight, you know, 12 hours you know, in 99 degree weather. Like maybe we need to take something that happens in the cemetery and move it to an office you know, or cut it. Right. Or, or, or now, and going back to the cemetery thing, like I have to be much more involved than I did on the pilot, not because we have directors who aren't brilliant and capable. They are. It's because they will do their cut and then they will go onto their next job as they should. And I'll be in the edit room with our editor saying, we needed this piece to tell the story that pays off in four episodes. Right. It's a different situation. I, I'll, I'll say though that my... This is why you're going to have it in, in the second episode, Rosario Dawson looks at the camera and says, am I a good man? <laughs> <laughs> there, might be, there might be some Easter eggs for the old, uh, the old <laughs> column heads. Just that my favorite piece of information from that expose or whatever you want to call it that IndieWire ran was David E. Kelly's show running hours. It says that David E. Kelly, David Boston Public E. Kelly, David Picket Fences E. Kelly, 
and I, I want to get the numbers right, so you may have to fact check it for me, but I believe it said that he visited set no more than once a week for an hour at a time, <laughs> which, like, look at God. Is that's my only, that's he, my he's only He's married to Michelle Pfeiffer, too, right? Yeah, I, I would also find that more worthy of my attention yes. than my multi-million dollar successful HBO show. But as someone who, you know, has vague passing memories of my family in California <laughs> and my friendship, such as with you, I think that's something to aspire to, not criticize. Absolutely. Okay, Andy, thank you so much for calling in from uh, a desert landscape. Can I step outside and see if there's, hold on, let me step outside here and see if there's anybody else. Because it's lunch, so I think nobody's around. I'm just seeing if anybody's hanging around. I'm looking outside. Jesus, this parking lot is hot. You, uh, definitely, I really think we need to have like a hybrid watch NFL show where we just roast Jay Ferguson about the Cowboys upcoming season. Oh my season. God, he's, he's ready. I mean, this is the thing. Uh, the, the, the one good thing about the cemetery scene is that this is the scene where all of our regular cast members are in it. So everybody's here today, plus some other fun people, but they're either in their trailers or at lunch, or maybe they've checked into the embassy suites and they're taking the <laughs> afternoon off. Hard to, say. <laughs> Hard to say. But next time I call in, I will have a special guest ready to, to nap with me. And I, and I hold out hope that the watch can go mobile this summer. Yes. No, I, I, come, I'm holding out hope too. Here. Andy, thanks so much for calling in, man. Thanks for holding it down, Chris and Kaya. And Baranski's. You Bye. guys too. Bye-bye. I'm now joined by, she's a big name online. <laughs> she's the, the biggest organizer of the hashtag release the Andrea Arnold cut <laughs> on Twitter. I don't know if I am, but no. we'll talk uh, about Amanda it. Amanda Dobbins is here, the co-host of Big Little Live, my buddy from The Ringer and from Life. And I wanted to talk to you about Big Little Lies this season, because while you've also been, you've mostly been talking about the show itself, there's been some off-court issues. Yes. That got brought up this week when IndieWire published a piece by Chris O'Fault about how this show is essentially, apparently, reportedly, taken away from Andrea Arnold at a certain point in 2018. It's an interesting piece. It's obviously sourced by people who are probably favorable to Andrea Arnold. Yes, it seems to be coming from that side of the story. Yeah, if you you had to divide the line, like a line across the country, and you said Andrea Arnold folks on that side, it's probably coming from over there. Mm -hmm. And it basically outlines the fact that, like, they brought this cast back. The cast is very expensive. David E. Kelly comes back. Everybody's involved. Jean-Marc Vallée is, is involved as an EP. And then at a certain point in the shooting while Andrea Arnold was under the impression that this was going to be her creative vision that she was executing, Jean-Marc Vallée came back in in some capacity as a post-production person and that there were even reshoots later, I believe even into 2019, according to this piece, that either he was like on set for or involved with as an EP and that she was essentially just kind of playing out the string and didn't want to make a big deal about it while it was still shooting. But obviously now it is getting to be a big deal. Right. And, and and the takeaway is basically that they took the show away from her. Yeah. What was your initial reaction when you read the piece? Huh. That explains a lot. Yeah. And I think we've been talking a little bit about it on Big Little Life. And you talked about it a bit with us this week. Thanks for coming on the show, by my the way. Pleasure. As our it legal was literally expert, my pleasure. It was awesome. Yeah. That the, the pacing on this season has been strange. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of high moments and high energy moments in the episode, like Every, in an episode, everything to do with Laura Dern. You know, there's like a 10-minute disco set piece in one of the episodes. And then there are a lot of really low moments. And, you know, obviously this is a show that deals with serious issues, and it did in season one. It dealt with sexual assault and abuse and and marital abuse and all sorts of tough issues. But that just tonally, 
it was seesawing a little mm-hmm. this season and that maybe they didn't have as much material as they thought in season two yeah. because it feels it took like a, a, a very good collection of memes. Yes. And we've been like, does this mystery matter? Does the mystery not matter? Is this show about custody? Is this show about, you know, there are a lot of, they're hitting a lot of different buttons, mm-hmm. but not always seemingly with a unified vision. Yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense that there were a lot of hands in this. And I think also there was a pretty significant outcry, you know, at least on Big Little Lies Internet, TV Internet, about this piece. And a lot of people's response was like, yes, that was very obvious based on what I was watching on the screen. And the fact the that screen. there are five editors credited. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But that the, sh- that the Andrea Arnold influence as we know it has pretty much disappeared from the things that we're watching on our television. Yeah. And that it's kind of gone back to the David E. Kelly, Jean-Marc Vallée approach to the show, albeit with some hiccups because, as we seem to have learned from this piece, they're slicing it up a bit. Yeah. And so for people who don't know, Andrea Arnold is a a filmmaker who made a a a very great movie called Fish Tank starring Michael Fassbender. Tremendous and tremendously upsetting movie. Yes. And then also directed American Honey and— was brought in, and I think that the idea was, at least on the surface, is infuse Big Little Lies season two with a different energy from the one that John Mark Valet brought. Now, in the interim, Valet directed Sharp Objects, and I think has kind of set up a cottage industry for himself of directing high end or at least pretentious mysteries, mm-hmm. right? Like try to explore psychological depths while also telling a whodunit. And in all likelihood, apparently, if they had their way, they probably would have just had Valet do season two if they had their druthers, right? Because that's ultimately they were probably like, he gets the look, he gets what we, what he he's kind of set up the visual language of the show, right? And yet he was busy shooting sharp sharp objects, and they didn't want to wait. And if you're dealing with Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, and Laura Dern schedules, you get the window you get, you have to go. Yes, and it's also just kind of. And this is part of the ultimate conflict here, which is just, this is season two of a TV show that already exists. And Mm -hmm. how much reinvention do you want versus how much do you want Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Zoe Kravitz, Laura Dern, plus Meryl Streep, Mm -hmm. plus David E. Kelly's script, finding out what happens. Like, how much is this a second season of a TV show, which we have very different expectations for versus definitely a, a film, but also even like serialized TV or auteur television. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they maybe wanted to have both, and then that didn't really work because those are competing ideas and yeah. competing ways of we- of make competing ways of making something. I mean, there. Th- this is sort of the little big little lie of anthology television: is people still want consistency and continuity. They don't want right. to like relearn how to watch something every time they turn it on. Yeah, but let's be real: this isn't anthology. No, television. I know, but it's like it sp- certainly isn't working for something like that. And I think like the way that it's been made and the way that it's been positioned. And just kind of how we watch TV now and how we expect things is that we are associating it with like, you know, miniseries, director-driven TV. But this is a David E. Kelly show who has, and TV is a writer's medium or it has been and it has. Probably especially as when it's a David E. Kelly show. Exactly. And then you've also got six brand name actresses Mm -hmm. who are certainly a priority. So I, I don't think that the director's vision was ever going to be able to be the solo vision yeah. on this. Yeah. And, and I so, think that, so it's worth noting for typically what the process is for 
at least the way they're doing things now. And I'm sure uh, I might get Andy on on this episode. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this, you will have already talked about it. But, you know, they basically bring in a director for a pilot episode or a series of episodes within the first season. And that director's responsibility is to work with the showrunner, if they are not also the showrunner, to create the visual language of the show that then will be passed down to other directors as they go forward in that season and seasons to come. So... Um, Someone's working, you know, right now on Andy's show to do that. There are people who, you know, there's going to be someone who's working on, uh, you know, The Watchmen, uh, Succession. Adam McKay works on the visual language of Succession, directs an episode, and then other people direct the, the following ones. I think that we, as as sort of culture watchers, see a name and we're like, that means that this show is going to be an Andrea Arnold movie. Mm-hmm. And if I had to guess, I, I think I said this to you over the weekend, there's a moment in bad mother when Shailene Woodley goes to when Jane goes to Corey's house right and it's right outside and it's this really harsh overhead porch light and a handheld shot of her like super close up and it's really raw and it feels very alive and I think that's Andrea Arnold I think that's an example of her being like let's just use available light let's just play with the scene let's just have these two characters do the scene and not think about where the blocking is or what the camera's doing, and I'm going to follow them, and I'm going to capture it. Yes, that seems right. And it also, you pointed out that multiple editors are credited mm-hmm. on each episode, like far more editors than are normally on a on a TV show, mm-hmm. because it does seem, the inference that you would make from that and from the IndieWire article is that Andrea Arnold shot a lot of things in her visual style, and then... Uh, some of those were decided to not, they cut around them, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so I do think that part of the season and the kind of tonal imbalance that I was talking about is those moments and then perhaps some other more David E. Kelly-ish moments have been sliced in and they're trying to put together um, some competing visions. Yeah. You said something where, you know, we see a name attached to a show and we're like, oh, It'll probably, you know, this show will be the Andrea Arnold show. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to say, I don't think we should gloss over it in the IndieWire article that at least according to that side of the story, it just seemed like she had that impression as well. Sure. And that then the process didn't go as smoothly and it, things maybe weren't communicated to her in the way that she wanted them to be brought over. And that's a shame. Like, I, it's I, a, you I'm know. sure Jeremy Saldier has the same report yes. about working on True Detective because he was supposed to direct more episodes than he did initially. There was quote-unquote scheduling issues. I very much love True Detective Season 3, but the first two that he directed are quite, like, atmospheric and evocative and very Saldier, and then they apparently were like, we need to, like, finish the show. We need to get going, and he can't, you can't keep filming puddles. Yes. Yeah. So it's very, it's common. I mean, there are, Hollywood is littered with stories of studio, you know, these types of processes, a lot of people being in the mix, but mm-hmm. it, it is a shame, I, you know, or it seems like if you think you're going to get to do it one way and your things are taken away, that you know, I, f- I feel for everybody involved in this. Yes, and it's really interesting to think about these directors that we consider, whether you, you want to say art house or independent or coming from like basically a probably more progressive or braver kind of cinema than like the blockbuster mainstream, either TV or movies. And this has happened a few times with Marvel. This has happened a few times with DC. This has happened a few times with these big blockbusters. And then it's happened, especially it's happened with Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of, it's happened a few times with TV where it's like somebody goes and they're going to get to direct a bunch. And then it turns out that they actually need 
it's a completely different mechanism. Like you have to move much faster. You have to get a lot of coverage. You can see a lot of scenes in Big Little Lies. I don't know if they are reshoots or if they were always in the script. A lot of like character randomly driving to another character's house to explain something, mm-hmm. which feels a lot like this episode doesn't make sense unless Maddie drives to Renata's to talk to her about something, which I guess you could say they aren't texting right. and stuff like that, which is fine because they don't want their texts to get found in Discovery. And they did do that a bit sure. in season yeah, one they would as meet well. For drinks. Yeah. yeah, and they would be driving and the music would be playing. And Just a lot of like showing up at Mary Louise's house. Yes. Or Mary Louise showing up at people's house where it'd be like, would you guys even be talking to her right now? It seems like it would be like legally wise to just stay out of her zone right now. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree. The seams, the expositional seams are showing a bit. I will also say it's been interesting to watch people talk about this. Like the thing to keep in mind, even with all of this sort of filmmaker drama around it, is that this show has always been a soap opera. Mm -hmm. The show is always written by David E. Kelly, like based on a novel by Leanne Moriarty, who is a wonderful author and who writes domestic soap operas. And it has been interesting to watch people respond to this report and be like, okay, well, that's why I don't like this show as much because it's gotten really soapy. And this show has always been unbelievably soapy and has had a lot of dramatic leaps I wish it was more soapy. I do too. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this edit seems to be going back to the David E. Kelly kind of over-the-top stuff. Yeah, so this is seven episodes. Like, it could easily be 10 for me. Yes. If this had gone on all summer, I'm sure it's impossible to get that much time of these people. Reese has an Apple show. She has a Hulu show. She has countless other things. All of these actresses and actors are incredibly busy. Uh, but I, I would be fine with this being a 10-episode thing that got more into the silly stuff that happens in Monterey. Me too. Like, yeah. I would have liked to see the full scene at the Esalen Institute when Ed and Madeline are just going at it. I would like to know more of what's happening with Renata and Gordon and their terrible marriage. Mm-hmm. I... You know, I would like to see more of, like, the dishy mystery stuff. Quinlan just kind of being not in the show for several episodes. I thought that was, like, a choice about the importance of theme, but maybe that was just kind of what they got. Yeah. So I would love for that to be more developed. But that's what I would want more of, not more atmosphere. Yeah. And so I think— Not more shots of waves crashing. Exactly. And— so I don't know. I well, I don't like, know what the Arnold. It's, it's interesting. It's like forty. I would love to see. We gotta write a, like an algorithm that can do this. Yeah. But like, I would love to see. It's forty-four minutes per show. About how much time is spent on Bonnie running or waves crashing? Which, by the way, random driving. Can I just say the first season, Jane just ran the whole damn time. I know. Their character development <laughs> for one character who had gone through an immense trauma was just her freaking running on a beach. It's the exact yeah. same thing. So I, you know, I don't actually blame any of this these season two reported yeah, shenanigans. Like I thought you guys liked this. You know, and I think people have have a real short memory when it comes to watching people running. Yeah. Release the running cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I just So I want to say that is that I seem to want like a different thing from the show than a lot of people, which is also to say, I do think it's been a little disjointed, but like I'm having a nice time watching this show. It's just because like, I don't think that we're capable of being like, it's pretty good. It's either like you fucked up. Yeah. You ruined Big Little Eyes. It's like, they didn't ruin anything. I, it's Reese Witherspoon is having a good time. Like, it's, it's she's well, in a wedding dress. Well, I'll 
be honest. I mean, that scene was great. I wanted more of that. I don't think that they have done justice to my queen, Reese. <laughs> I mean, release the full Esalen episode. That was so weird. Yeah. That was like 10 seconds. Yeah. Come on. That's hilarious. Give her more to do because I don't care about Ed. I think that they've done a disservice to the Bonnie character. We've talked a lot about this on the show, yeah. which is just like you can't have the only black female character suddenly have like mystical vibes. Like not a great look. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they could give Laura Dern a little more room to explore the edges, though I love it when she's screaming. You don't think she's living on the edge? <laughs> I'd like to see where the edge is, actually. It's blue velvet. Yeah, yeah. but I I just, I like, this is the type of TV that I like to watch. Yeah. I And I yeah. think there are actually- I just actually, wish there was more of it, honestly. I agree. There yeah. are a lot of people who are like, oh, so it's like six really famous actresses just having rich people problems on my screen every week in a ridiculous way. Great. Yeah, I was. You know, it's funny. I I was thinking. I was randomly. My my wife was really busy yesterday, so I was just kind of like flipping around, and I randomly started watching like Friday Night Lights episodes on Hulu yesterday, just like in the background. Mm-hmm. And I was like, TV used to be great. Yeah, TV just had like five stories, and you could just have it on, and you'd be like, Oh and, yeah, and you just and you wanted to know what happened, what's and up? I QB like, one. You what's know happening? what's great plot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so this. I mean. My number one complaint with this season is like, I would like to know what happened. Yeah. And maybe we could have some more things happening. And my excitement for Sunday night is like, I would like to know what happens. Yeah. And I think I said on the show, on our show this week, like, if I don't find out what happens, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> Can't but wait. that's, I know, and it's going to be live. <laughs> and please tune in Sunday night after the East Coast airing for Big Little Live and me yelling. Yes. But it's not. That's why I'll be mad, not because it didn't achieve some perfect balance of, I don't know, interiority and like perfect lighting. Yeah. I, I don't know, fam. I, I just, I like TV. Sometimes TV just I needs like TV to be TV. Too. It's, yeah. it's a good way to end the pod. That's where I am. Okay. Thank you so much, Amanda, for coming by. Thank Big Little you. Live comes on after the season finale of Big Little. Is it a series finale too? For now, but they said this last time. I bet you in two or three years they come back. Two years. But we need a new story. Yeah, absolutely. They got to end this story right now. I want to be very clear. If there are any editors still employed, you got like five days left. All five of you guys. Get back to work. There we go. (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much for coming by, Amanda. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Discount Tire. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes the difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960... Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all of your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, they'll get you taken care of. Today's episode of The Watch Pod is brought to you by Luminary. Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I am excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss if you're a watch fan. In 1999, a music festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. 
There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and it was all set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism, but Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators that you can't find anywhere else, like our spinoff, The Rewatchables 99. The Luminary app is free to download, and in addition to the can't-miss originals, you can listen to thousands of podcasts. Whether you're into music, TV, and film, comedy, sports, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash watch. After that, it's only $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash watch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash watch. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Now I'm joined, making her grand return from the East Coast where she has been touring the world's great humidity (laughs) attractions of Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Where else? Were you in Washington? Yeah, I was just in D.C. and New York, but just enough humidity to last me a lifetime. And you traveled through Philly on train, by train. Yes, I did specifically text Chris to let him know that I was passing through Philly as Chris let me know (laughs) that Claire Saffitz was in the studio. (laughs) And, you know... It did seem like I was targeting you a little bit by doing that. I just, I need to be transparent about my feelings for the listeners. (laughs) I'm working through this. I think we can get to forgiveness eventually. Yes. But... I'm a little sore that you did talk to Half Sour. <laughs> half Sour without, without you. That was a really fun episode on Thursday. I wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for Allison because Allison brought gourmet makes into my life. So thank you for that. I think that you were re- the reason why I looked it up in the first place because you had originally, originally talked about it. Yes, I think I converted you to the Bon Appetit extended universe. Yes, and then right. Gourmet Makes is yours and many highlights out of that extended universe. But again, I'm I'm very happy that I brought you into the fold. It was a great interview. I'm so looking forward to the Pop Rocks Thank episode. you. Yeah, I know. It was really funny to listen to Claire because she was like, very nervous about like spoiling future gourmet makes episodes, like as if Mysterio was going to be like show up in one of them. But it was like it was very fun. Let's talk about Euphoria. Yeah, let's. Weirdly, I wouldn't have necessarily uh, called this a couple weeks ago, not because it, I wasn't interested in the subject matter, but more because I wasn't so like locked in on the execution of Euphoria. This is re- regular viewing for me. Like every Sunday, I'm happy to turn Euphoria on, despite the fact that it's obviously not like the most uplifting stuff. I wanted to talk to you about how you feel like the show is progressing. It just got announced that it will be coming back for a second season. I think there's only like two episodes left, right? Or three? I think it's an eight-episode season. So yeah. this was the fifth. Yeah, we so we more. got three episodes left. This last one was directed, Oh Three, Bonnie and Clyde. They've all been named after rap songs so far. far. Uh, Major Look was another one. Uh, this last one was directed by Jennifer Morrison. I thought she did a really good job with it. I, You know, there are plot lines that I care more or less about, but for the most part, it's like, a pretty well executed high school soap with like obviously incredibly heavy real world material. And then I wanted to also just talk to you about the execution of it. Well, weirdly, the fact that it is so uneven, I do think makes it really interesting week to week viewing yeah. where it's like, I want to keep checking in to see 
how the weird balance between all the different elements of the show works out. So just for full disclosure, this was the first episode past the initial screeners, the screeners yeah. that critics saw. So I saw the first four, and four I think, was quite good too. I thought, yeah, yeah. I, th- I definitely thought the screeners got better as they went on, but my initial review was like pretty mixed because folding the first four episodes in with Sam Levinson's debut feature, Assassination Nation, which came out last year. I think there are some shared tendencies Mm -hmm. that I am a little suspicious of. Um, To be totally honest, I didn't love Assassination Nation, and I saw some of those impulses at work in Euphoria, which I think what Levinson does is that he both wants to sensationalize and maybe leer a little Mm -hmm. bit at the inner lives of teenage girls, but he also— knows enough to know that he should be, like, sensitive to their interests. So Mm -hmm. you get, you know, Zendaya saying in voiceover, don't shame girls for sending dick pics, whereas the entire show is this very prurient, like, oh, my God, children are just having sex all the time. Yes. But so is that, like, I guess that's really an interesting question about lots of cultural artifacts right now or cultural production right now is how much are we inferring that, Tisk tiskness. Like, because there's not really the adults in this show, with the exception of Eric Dane's character, who's like off to the side, are like, I think, struggling with their kids' behavior, but it doesn't necessarily come as a surprise to them, right? Yeah, I think the darkness of the show is where I infer the tisk-tiskness. It almost feels engineered to elicit the panicky response that Rob Harvilla dramatized so humorously in his piece about the show. And I think the contrast to something like Skins is Skins kind of shows the kids having fun a Mm -hmm. little more. And part of that in Euphoria, I think, is to its benefit in the way that it shows that Zendaya isn't just using drugs uh, recreationally. Her character, Rue, like, is an addict who goes to meetings. Yes. And it treats that part of her psychology really well. And I will say, part of the reason why I think I'm liking the show more as it goes on, and I really liked Sunday's episode, is that the fact that this is a TV show, I think, encourages the best side or the more interesting side of Levinson's approach, which is just it's a character-based, plot-based media. Yeah, and I will say that Rue— I mean, I, I, we, we talked about this the first time we talked about this show, but the Rue and Jules relationship, I think, is a really special thing on TV right now. Like, I just I think just, like, the chemistry between the performers and where it's going with this, because typically— the thing about what Zendaya is doing is that her affect is perfectly matched with her character's interior life. So you you can kind of see that this is a person who has like sanded down all her nerve endings, and it, it's really hard for her to feel anything. And and that's I think in some ways across the board with the, the kids in this show is that you're not really sure what's in there anymore because of how maybe they've been hollowed out by what they see on their screens or like what the world is telling them. But there's this really interesting dynamic at play that especially gets played up towards the end of this fifth episode about the trade-off of addiction and and how she is basically saying like, I will stay clean if I have this person. That's the trade. Like I will do it because Jules is essentially replacing what drugs gave me. And then that tightrope and how Jules feels about being replaced, like being the replacement there. And that tightrope that that Rue is going to walk. I thought it was like a really perceptive, accurate, and and sensitive portrayal of like addiction in a way that you usually don't see on TV. Yeah, and I do think one of the things I 
appreciated about this past episode is the show's starting to do a really good job of both keeping you in Rue's point of view and making her just an incredibly compelling, compelling charismatic lead, which is due in, in large part to Zendaya's performance. But also in this episode, you can really see like what Rue is doing that is unhealthy and yeah. complicated and conveying, you know, that final shot of Jules realizing that she just has an incredibly unfair weight being put on her as like a caretaker to her friend, which is just not something anybody should be wholly responsible for, let alone a teenage girl with her own set of issues and problems. And I really like that it shows you, like, what Rue is doing wrong while also just rooting you in her perspective. And I want to say, like, one of the things I like about the show is the way they're able to do that across the cast. Like, even in the screeners, which I had, like, a slightly more mixed reaction to than this past episode, I've always loved this cold open approach they have where it's like every episode— Long monologue from Rue. About a different character. And just telling you how, you know, this past episode, it was about Maddie, who's this former child pageant who's kind of— I don't think she's explicitly a cheerleader, although you do see her dancing, but she's the kind of, like, popular girl who's the girlfriend of the jock and could definitely very easily be marginalized— And Rue explains her thought process, explains her background. But at the same time, these kids are are being stupid. (laughs) They're acting in very dumb ways that are very realistic for a teenager. Mm -hmm. But you're also led to get them a little more. And I think the farther the show goes, the more it leans into the treating these people as humans with you know, serious problems and conflicting influences. And the less it gives into the more sensationalistic, you know, being provocative for provocativeness's sake that I balked at in the earlier episodes. Yeah, I don't don't find the show very provocative, honestly. Like, I think it's, it wants to be, but like, I think Kat's plotline, for instance, should be provocative. But when she hooks up with the guy at the mall, you know, and it finally is consummated, I think, you know, towards the last 15 minutes of the episode... I'm kind of like, like given what else we've seen over the course of this episode, this is not like hammering home whatever I think that they want. Maybe they're not trying to hammer home anything at all. Maybe it's just like this is this this is what she wants to be doing, and she well, is like herself now, and not just identifying herself through being friends with Maddie or whatever. Well, with that plot line, I thought the camming thing was way too over the top, and it's weirdly almost unnecessary now that it gets into just her having sex with random guys and. I do think it hits on, like, a very real tendency that, like, less conventionally attractive teen girls have, which is, like, we're taught that sex is validation, and she's in that phase where she realizes, like, oh, I—guys are attracted to me, and I feel like I should pursue and indulge that because, like, that's what makes me feel desired and Mm -hmm. seen. And that's just, like, a totally, like— I have seen that happen to friends. I identify with that thought process she's going to. And it's like, now that she's doing that with actual people in her life, I don't really think the, like, totally excessive camming plot line, which feels like a, I don't even know, like an episode of Undress or something. That one feels like a little bit like a whiteboard dump. Like, let's, let's put a character at the top and let's, like, list 15 things that she could be into. Like, One Direction fanfic, but Tumblr, but this, but camming. And it's like, on one hand... They're trying to plot, like, see, this is the trajectory that, like, if somebody gets started in this subculture, they could just keep going deeper and deeper into this. But on the other hand, I felt like it was really more of, like, a list of, like, bullet points about 
the dangers of being online too much that got shoved into one character. And it's not really needed anymore now that I feel like the character is expressing that same conflict in a much more grounded way. Mm -hmm. Also, the One Direction thing I thought was funny in that it's one of those examples of the show. I think the show is almost like least effective as a Gen Z explainer just because One Direction fanfic on Tumblr was my generation of teens. (laughs) That was like, you know, a half decade plus ago. It's kind of like, has Sam Levinson been working on this for the, for a while and like has taken some stuff from maybe a, another generation and put it in this. Yes, and speaking of like I generally really liked the Maddie plotline that we got in last night's episode. That person would not idolize Sharon Stone's character in Martin Scorsese's 3-hour film. I didn't Casino. so that was a good question. I was wondering if Casino had like a Netflix run and that that's why maybe it got discovered like if it, I didn't know but like that is certainly not like I don't know how you come across that character. That is not a movie that gets, uh, like, batted around a lot. I think it's on Netflix recently. I just don't think, like, that person would be watching Netflix. This is not someone who has been shown to have, like, any other interest in, like, classic cinema. (laughs) She could just list a character from, like, Love and Hip Hop or Real Housewives, and it would occupy the same, like, I think, space in pop culture. Sure. But it would just make more sense. Or, like, in an earlier episode, Rue's little sister, who's played by Storm Reid, mentions that she's watching My So-Called Life. Yeah. And it's like... I don't really think today's teens know I don't who know. Angela Chase is. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you can tell me anything now that, now that like, you know, Friends had that kind of run that it did. Let's talk a little bit about the execution because I think that um, I've been, I've been kind of like workshopping this a little bit and I was thinking about writing something about it, but there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is basically how packed to the gills this is with music, which I think gives it a buoyancy that it may not always have because it's so morbid and it's it's so dark and even it's uh the lighting the staging like everything kind of looks borderline riverdale you know and and really atmospherics like when they walk um tyler and his dad through the cafeteria or whatever that's supposed to be it's like rue and jules are just sitting at a table in basically an unoccupied basketball gym like it doesn't make any sense as to why there's only two tables in this giant space other than it looks cool. Yeah. And so they've already got like a kind of heightened reality, a very stylized reality going. And then on top of that, I don't know what changed about, about music supervision or like the what it costs to place things in shows. It was like a really big deal 20 years ago if you could get a certain song. Like if there was like a song in a Scorsese movie, it was like, oh my God, they got a Rolling Stones song. And now it's just like, every second of available footage is crammed with some song. And I like the music in Euphoria, like, as music. It's just that I wonder how Euphoria would play as just, like, straight footage. Like, I'm curious whether or not it would be unwatchable sometimes. Yeah, well, first of all, I think it, this is that Drake EP credit doing its work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think they really needed to, I'm sure... The, that was paid for handsomely and they need to get the most bang for their buck mm-hmm. out of out of having him as a collaborator. Yes. But yeah, I agree. It definitely fits with the whole like almost music video-ish. Like there's a whole interlude in Assassination Nation that's just like a cheerleader played by Bella Thorne like twerking in slow motion to a rap song uh-huh. and it, it plays like zero function in the plot and is literally just like this looks cool. I do think as the series goes on, it is a little more of a counterbalance and a little less just, like, doing wheelies. But, yeah, like, I I notice all the time just the way they make this 
really banal suburb. Like, there, there's absolutely a way they could have shot and lit this that would just be, like, fluorescent lighting everywhere. Everything's kind of bleached of color yeah. in a way that kind of, like, matches the way Rue experiences the world. But it's way more like Spring Breakers. Yeah. Exactly. Or Riverdale yeah. or whatever. Like, that scene where um, her Jules and Maude Apatow's character, Lexi, are just, like, getting on their bikes outside the roller rink. And the, the roller rink, for whatever— ha- for whatever reason, has these, like, multi-tonal neon lights on yeah. just, like, the patio. And I was just like, okay, it is honestly, like, a huge part of the appeal of the show is it's just cool to look at. Yeah, it's and- cool to look at. It's cool to listen to. There's some really good performances. I think we're being obviously set up for, like, Rue relapse because Jules can't handle it. But what do you think the legs are for this show? Because it feels so, like, honestly, like, frenzied when you're watching it that it's hard to understand what the sustainability and like long tail of this show would be and also I would have to say that typically what happens in a second season of anything especially a show that's set in high school or has like an ensemble like this is they just like add characters and I would have to say that I'm already kind of like not really I know that next week is probably about McKay and Cassie but I'm just kind of like who like I'm not even sure who all these people are sometimes so do you think that it's a show that should get like larger in its ensemble and what do you, what do you think it can be as it goes forward I would not be surprised if it if the season ended with some huge like shark jumping crazy confrontation although I will say I was pleasantly surprised in the developments in last night's episode where this choking incident that happened at the county fair in Mm -hmm. episode four results in a guy, like, getting charges and people immediately being like, yeah, this is abuse, this is violent, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, kind of a pleasant surprise to see, like, that kind of character experiencing real consequences. Very far from the (laughs) River's Edge ethos of a kid who tells on another kid is a dead kid, because, like, everybody in there was just like, yo, I don't know if this is relevant to your investigation, but here's all this other gossip that's going on. (laughs) That's like just telling the principal everything. Just immediate stitching, (laughs) or the way it just immediately becomes common knowledge that this kid is, like, struggling with his sexuality. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even like, oh, like, he's lost his popularity, he's nothing Everyone's just like, oh, yeah, like, that's an interesting thing that, that'll, like, occupy my group chat for a second. Sure. But the fact that that plot went in a surprising direction just makes me curious on a raw, like, I don't really know what's going to happen next level. Mm-hmm. I also do think it's smart that they keep the action pretty, like, an eight episodes feels like the right length. Yes. Like, and also, I've been surprised, like, we're more than halfway through and not a huge amount has necessarily happened. I just, I like this show a lot as just a character base. Let's figure out the interior lives. And I'm curious in the trajectory of the action, but, like, that's where it's it's best. And I almost feel like, I agree with you in that I would almost rather they bear down a little deeper on, you know, I'm, there's tons about Jules and her family situation and what's going to yeah. happen when she tries to, you know, navigate the whole, I'm out, i outgrown the small town thing that I would just like to see without the additional crowd. So they're juniors? I don't know if they've established that yet. Because Zendaya says, Rue says something about following Jules to New York and following her wherever she's going to go. So I was trying to remember like, oh, is this, I bet they're, I bet it's like the weird like, is Tim Riggins a sophomore for three years so that he can still be on Friday yeah, Night Yeah, I think they might also just, like, walk it back where it's like, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> that was 10th grade. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about Zendaya because uh, I haven't actually seen Spider-Man yet because I've just been trapped in front of my computer waiting for people to get traded in the NBA. But it's a really cool star-making performance to the extent that she needed to be made a star anymore because it's not flashy. Because it's so, it's so, like, 
wise beyond her years and flat, and it's not like disnified at all. It's not like stage kid at all. It's very, very, very within itself. I, can you talk to me a little bit about how you how you're feeling about that performance? Totally. I mean, well, first of all, uh, Lindsay Zolads wrote a great piece for The Ringer about yeah. Zendaya's rise as a celebrity and the way she's kind of mastered this, like, cool kid deadpan, both in Spider-Man and in Euphoria. Yeah, so to some extent, it's an extension of that, yeah. Yeah, and one thing I really like about the sort of casting and characterization on this show is it avoids that problem where it's like, here's someone who is obviously insanely charismatic in that she was cast to anchor a TV show, but we're going to— depict her as, like, a loser or someone who's widely disliked or a social outcast or something. And I think both her and Jules, played by Hunter Schaefer, are really shrewdly outlined as, like, you can see why they don't really fit in, mm-hmm. but no one is like, oh, like, those weirdos. It's yes. just, like, they kind of stick to themselves. They're, you know, they fit into the social landscape. You can see how they're a little segregated, but also, like, they can— navigate things in a way that's not like, let's pretend these insanely compelling people, like just no one else notices that about them, which is something I really like about Euphoria in general is that except for, you know, this Jacob Elordi's character, there aren't really villains. It's just everyone kind of figuring out their own shit. Yeah, and I think that it's doing an interesting thing where we're we're probably like, it's terrifying for adults and maybe it's passe for teens. I have no idea. Like, I mean, or maybe it's passe for people in their 20s who are like, well, that wasn't quite what it was like, by the way, you know, or whatever. But every once in a while, you probably hit a generation that's particularly susceptible to new and or intense amounts of drugs. Like, I mean, like, the, you know, whether it's like when ecstasy hit or when, you know, you had the 60s with with psychedelics, um, in the 80s with cocaine. And I think that there probably is like an unremarked upon amount of like mind-altering substances going around that are in tandem with the state of the world, being online all the time, living your life as through these like avatars of experience. They're probably doing a lot to change like what I grew up, like my idea of what like normal high school experiences and also like normal conventions of sexuality and, and like, identity, you know? And I think that that's worth noting that, like, the show seems pretty non-judgmental about all of it and not even using it to be, like, you should be scared because your kids are doing so many drugs. I'm sure that they're, I mean, like, you see somebody like Rue and you see somebody who's, like, in danger of, of really falling into a hole. But for the most part, it seems to just be kind of, like, this is, like, a, a mode, but it's not necessarily a sin. Yeah, I think the show is is best when it does that. Yeah. I do think it can't really resist sometimes being like, your kids are showing themselves for strangers on the internet yeah. and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And I think the more it goes into just... Well, it like, wants to have it both ways. It wants to have like the shocking thing and then the voiceover that's like, this isn't that big of a deal. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's totally true. And I think one of the reasons why Zendaya is so great is that both her character feels very specific and you see how her addiction and her drug use is born out of her specific life history Mm -hmm. and disposition. And it's not just like, kids everywhere are doing fentanyl. (laughs) Right. It's like this person feels the need to try these substances because they've been made to feel this way by like the passing of her father Mm -hmm. and her weird relationship with her mother and her just... Natural. And the existential experience of, like, being a suburban American. You know what I mean? And just kind oh, of, yeah, like, the shadow of the 9-11. Void. No, I know. I know. <laughs> oh, God. All right, Allison, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about Euphoria. We'll definitely have you back on. Maybe for the finale. We'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll be back on before then. But to talk about the end of the season and what we thought. Sure. 